Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Pumping once, now throwing long down the left side. Slaughter has it. He's going in for a touchdown. The Browns have won the game. (laughs) Throwing deep down the left side. Slaughter is open. He got the ball. Johnson one-on-one with Joe Hayden at the bottom of the screen. Not a great matchup for the Browns. Corey Coleman in the backfield. Kaiser under pressure. Somehow escapes. Kaiser's pass is incomplete. Right through the hands of Coleman. And he can't believe it. You know how bad that was is Mike Mitchell, who had gone off with one of the better rants of 2017, right. yep. and I'm basically a real hardcore football guy. Even he went over there to help him up and kind of dust right. him off after that one because he knows that is a dark, dark place to be is where Corey Coleman was living right there. Sir does everything that he possibly can, and that one goes right through your hands. Incomplete pass, and what a disappointing end. To the Cleveland Browns offense. You keep hearing about this 0-16 parade. I hope they don't have it. I have no idea what they're going to do. I know they kept talking about it. It's it's not something, in, in my eyes, that you want to celebrate. My DBN brothers and sisters, I'm a Browns fan. Taking solace in the fact that these beatings are finally over. My name is Thelonious 7, and you... You're listening to Straight No Chaser on the DBN Network. It's been a while since I've been behind this microphone. It's a busy holiday season this year. Got had a bunch of family in. And uh, actually, it was, it, was, it was funny. I told a story earlier on about how last year uh, for the Christmas Eve game against the Chargers, the only one that we've won like in the last two years. Last year, I had to stick my cell phone kind of down on the table so I could like sneak it in in between our, you know, our family Christmas Eve dinner. And this year, I used like every bit of political and family clout that I had to get the time of dinner moved from 7 p.m., which is right when the game starts, to 6 p.m., so that I have a little bit of time to watch the game without, you know, being so disrespectful. Being so disrespectful to people who made us the delicious Christmas dinner which we enjoyed. You know, even with all that, even with all that, it didn't stop the Browns from grinching up my Christmas. You know, it's that feeling. And I know you know the feeling. It's the feeling when you saw that yellow flag symbol light up in the corner of your screen. Right after... Miles Garrett put the Browns ahead in the Bears game. You knew it was against the Browns. 
And you know, I think this year at Christmas, that yellow flag symbol actually broke me. You know, I was I was saying before how I, I didn't yell so much during games, but like three or four times this year, I, I yelled, you know, during the Browns game. But this time, during the Miles Garrett return or after the return, I was not yelling. I, I was deflated. This was the most deflating moment in the entire football year. I didn't have any words for it. You know, I tried to explain it to a couple of family members who were looking at me trying to say, yeah, are you okay? What's going on? You look like you're about to cry. And, you know, mostly they looked at me with a mixture of pity, petty judgment, and it was, it was pretty much awful. That was probably the last chance, right? That was the last vestige of hope that you had that the Browns would be able to avoid 0-16, right? Right? Oh, no. No, wait, no. There was still one more game. There was one more chance. It was on the road. But their five best players will be resting. And I was over at Behind the Steel Curtain. You know, right after they won the Monday Nighter before that last game in Week 17. I was trying to see if they were going to be out resting their starters. And by the way, I exchanged a little bit of banner with those guys. And I must say... I must say, the guys at Behind the Steel Curtain were absolutely lovely to me. I mean, they asked questions, they joked around, and they were completely, I mean, they were completely respectful to me. It was, in a way, it was like totally outside of my experience with that group. Eventually, one of the guys, I guess, as they always do, made a joke or kind of kind of commented that saying that the Steelers would be up at 50 at halftime and he was excited to see whether Jones or Dobbs or somebody would be in the game. And I was, you know, I don't know why, but for some reason, 50 by halftime, I think he was kind of being serious, and I was kind of trying to tactfully find a way to tell him that the Browns were not going to be trailing by 50 at halftime. But, you know, I'm not really trying to say, like, you know, it's really, you know, the Browns are going to win or anything. But, you know, I was just trying to, like, put this guy in check for saying something so ridiculous. It's not at awful to me. But, you know, after I made my point to him, and I was, like, all tactful, he said something to me, which was like this. You know what? You know what? We take no joy in beating the dead carcass horse of a team that you have. That's basically what they were saying to me. And in the end, I I, I don't know, man. This, uh, that's when I left the, the chat and didn't really engage them anymore. Because really, look, look what's happened here. Our traditional rival fans don't even want to talk trash to us. We're basically a non-team to them. There is... No rivalry. Mr. Weave, easy as it were, or (laughs) as it was, he's encapsulated my feeling after watching the last game of the year. You know, because after watching that last game, I was definitely mad, definitely angry. But it wasn't really angry at Kaiser or Coleman or even the Browns. I think I was angry at myself. For letting myself get all worked up over it. I mean, the timing of what had happened was somehow in the middle of a New Year's Eve celebration. I realized then that, like, the Browns were really just ruining holidays for me, you know? And uh, after that game, I decided to pour as many imbibing substances as I could get into my mouth and try to forget about the year that I'd wasted on this team. You know, 
I try to tell people just how crazy New Year's Eve can be uh, where I'm living now. And I don't think I can do it justice. You kind of have to see it for yourself. And you can get fireworks in the States on the 4th of July. But, you know, generally the people who are going out and getting fireworks are kind of a pyromaniac type, kind of reckless people or degenerate. Maybe degenerates is going too far. You kind of see a few rogue displays of patriotism here or there, but it's it's not, you know, it's not everywhere. Here where I'm living now, New Year's Eve is a much different thing because for a brief window of time, fireworks are like readily available in lots of shops. And it's not just a few sketchy individuals selling them, they're literally everywhere and purchased by a large segment of the population in orgiastic proportions. You know, I kind of live kind of in a smaller kind of a village this year, but that didn't stop this place from feeling like a straight up war zone to be sure. A few years ago, I used to live in a different town, a town that was like a kind of a river town. And on uh, New Year's Eve on the river, kind of the the whole population of the town kind of lines up on both sides of the river uh, near a bridge. And the display there is, it's, it's literally unreal. What makes it so shocking is the range of people who are participating in this display. I mean, there were like seven and eight-year-old kids like chasing each other through the crowds with like what looked like or sounded like M80s, man. And they were grandmas and great-grandmas hunched over carrying grocery bags full of fireworks. And like 20 minutes on either side of the countdown... There's like this deafening display of pyrotechnics in danger. You could hardly see through the smoke and the drunk people. It was really crazy. Really, really crazy. And for me, this year, I must say, I honestly needed this type of display after watching the Cleveland Browns finish their 2017 edition of a season for us. Mercifully, it came to an end. And I was so happy to have a chance to hear all of that chaos putting an end of the year behind me, mercifully. But then, but then what? What about the parade? Last year when I heard about this parade, you know, I was kind of like, eh, about it. The Browns were basically tanking, and if they went 0-16 while tanking, and you threw a parade about that and celebrated, you'd be the kind of a fan who didn't understand what the fan was, what the team was actually trying to accomplish. I wouldn't have advocated for it a year ago. This year, though, was, was somehow different. Once the Browns went 0-8, the season kind of went sideways. And you saw new, never-before-seen levels of incompetence. The trades were being allegedly sabotaged. Coaches were earning nicknames like Wormtongue. The owner had hired a fourth GM in five years, who subsequently came in and said all of our suffering and losing had been in vain, as we had, <laughs> as we had a lack of real football players on our roster. The only thing that I was thinking was questionable about this parade, in this case, was the nomenclature. I think it should have been called a protest, a fan uprising or whatever, but calling it a parade only means you have to spill ink and words on paper 
for people who don't have the ability to understand literary devices like irony. What kind of an idiot do you think Brown fans are? What kind of an idiot thinks that Browns fans are celebrating going 0-16? Who's that stupid? This isn't a celebration. It's a cathartic expression of frustration. And these 3,000 fans did something together to help them process the almost complete waste of time that was the 2017 Cleveland Browns season. You know, at first... I got upset reading the posts of Danny Shelton and Ogba. I'm going to read the Ogba post for you now. He started things off kind of in a manner attacking the fans. His tweet, uh, which got over 1,000, 2,000 responses even, was this. That parade is a joke. Don't call yourself a true Browns fan if you go to that thing. Going 0-16 was embarrassing enough as a player. That is like adding fuel to the fire, and it is completely wrong. You know, as I first read this, I felt like Ogba was completely out of line to call out the fans in this manner, because really the fans were not going after players in this action. I don't think that anyone uh, that it targeted the... I don't think that anyone associated with this was really targeting the effort of the players, and when I read it, I kind of got indignant. Because trust me, a dude who will go out in six degree weather for a parade like this is absolutely a Browns fan through and through. And it's likely that this person has been a Browns fan for longer than Ogba has even been playing football. For me, this isn't about the players. It's about the management and the ownership. It was primarily about Haslam, but it was also about Jackson as well. It was about a decision to keep a coach who has, uh, oh, sorry, it was about a decision to keep a coach who none of the fan base wants over their dire opposition. The correct response for the players in this case probably should have been silence. I mean, actually, I don't even mind them voicing an opinion, disagreeing with what's going on. But please, don't call the few remaining fans that you have left out. Because in me, I consider that to be in poor taste. This year has been topsy-turvy to say the least. I mean, earlier in the year, uh, as I've said a couple of times in this show, you had the Browns signing Calvin Pryor, who was better known as the Louisville Slugger. And then you had the Louisville Slugger getting run out of Cleveland for slugging Ricardo Lewis. I thought that was crazy. But now, in these comments, you have another story coming full circle. And, you know, I don't want to make a specific comment in the interest of staying out of the political side of things. But within the last year, we've had now players telling fans not to protest as well as fans urging players to do the same. It has been a crazy, crazy year. And, of course, after Ogba got into the media, there was (laughs) feast mode Danny Shelton getting involved in it as well. And, uh... (laughs) This is a really interesting comment that he makes here. This is the first one he does in, re- in response to uh, what Ogba said in his initial tweet. It's funny doing these little tweet <laughs> segments, and, uh, making arguments over pieces that are only 140 characters, right? But anyways, check out what Danny Shelton says in this tweet. And it starts it off like this. Can't wait for things to start rolling the right way for the Brown. Funny how these quote-unquote fans will be the one to say, 
I'm a diehard Browns fan. But fans don't disrespect their home team. Shrug emoji. I know we still have some faithful fans out there. Things will get better. <laughs> to me, this is kind of a scary argument. And actually, it's pretty good use of the sandwich technique to give somebody negative information, right? You know that technique. Say something positive, then say your negative thing, the positive thing afterwards. That's what Danny Shelton's really doing here. And so I guess it's funny to look at the piece of negative information in this sandwich. In this this tweet, if you look at it closely, what he's really saying is... He's saying that protesters aren't fans. He's actually saying that protesting is disrespectful to the team. And to me, this kind of sounds like a defensive hierarchy. You know, like if there was kind of like a great chain of being. And at the top of the great chain of being, there is God. And then like Roger Goodell. And then like the owners, the GMs. And then followed by the coaches and the players. And at the very bottom of this pyramid of hierarchy is the fans. You know, from the top down, it's okay to disrespect people that are do things that are incorrect to them. It's okay for Goodell to disrespect players and for the owners to rightfully charge you as the fans $10 to park in their parking lot and $8 for beer. I mean, owners will make you get a personal seating license and make you pay for the ticket on top of that. That's disrespect as far as I'm concerned. But for fans, being upset that the team they've loved for a lifetime can't win one game? I mean, last year they got one game and we let them off the hook. But this year they got nothing. And how dare the fans question what's so obviously flawed? How disrespectful of the fans to show up in six degree weather to say they're disgusted at the year of football they just witnessed? I mean, I don't see how you couldn't be. Only if you didn't care. And somehow, more I'm thinking about it, maybe that's the point. I mean, I almost don't care anymore. This owner is doing this maybe because he wants to move the team. Really, I've read post after post expressing the apathy that fans are feeling after this this last year. Was it supposed to move? Should we just tell everyone to quiet down so he doesn't go art model on our city? Is that the point of being respectful? For me, respect is a two-way street, and I hope that this group can see it. I saw it mentioned uh, that the Browns missed a huge chance to change this narrative by showing up with, like, hot chocolate and telling the fans that they understood their frustration. And for me, I think I would have gotten on board if Jackson would show up and then jumped in the lake. Man, I would have kind of felt sorry for the dude jumping in the lake at this time, right? But, you know, as I see it, All you get to see from this organization is a demonization of the people who care enough to make their voices heard. Find that troubling. I mean, this all should blow over. I mean, it should. And if the Browns take care of business this offseason, it will. But at the same time, really? This team has sucked for years. And... Jimmy Haslam, how do you buy a sucky team and make it even worse? They've taken the most loyal and genuine fans in the world and now are actively attacking the most passionate of them. And to me, I find the events troubling. I think it could get 
better with time, but I could easily see it getting worse with time. But you know what would change it? You know what would have changed it this last year? Winning but a single game. I mean, the bar is so, so low. I mean, what what are they going to have to do this offseason to make this problem go away? Well, they got to get a quarterback. Right now, they're talking a lot about getting a bridge and a veteran quarterback to come in here and stabilize the position. And good Lord, after this last year, I know we need that. Some of the names that have been thrown around are Tyrod Taylor, Sasnash, Teddy Bridgewater, Sam Bradford, Alex Smith, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Mike Glennon. Oh, my God. But really, <laughs> out of all these guys, this list of guys that could end up being the bridge quarterback to the future quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, the only guy we really have to really worry or concern ourselves with getting is Alex Smith because he's the only one the Browns could assure that's going to join their team because they could trade for him. Because who the hell else is going to willingly come here? It's not a very long list. The problem is, how much in draft capital is it going to cost for us to bring a guy like Alex Smith on board? This is where you start to miss Sashi Brown because really, with Sashi, you could be sure he'd find the correct buying point. If it was a deal at least he wanted to consummate, I suppose. But how much is this football guy going to pay for Alex Smith? Because normally, a team who's going to say, hey, this guy's available. Normally, this this team is going to be dealing from a position of weakness. In fact, there's a chance that people might look at Smith and say, uh, what the hell, $16.2 million for that guy? Let's cut him. Or let them cut him. We can sign him for less. But not to the Browns. And really, because the Browns are out there, anyone who wants to sign this guy is going to have to outbid the Walmart share of draft capital. That's the Cleveland Browns. How much? How much is it going to cost for us to get Alex Smith on this team to stabilize the quarterback position? Is it going to be a second round draft pick? Or which one? (laughs) It's a nice question to ask, right? You'd like to say that the Eagles pick would do it, but that's the thing. If this is the only guy that you can reasonably expect to get for next year, I think that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to be able to get more from the Browns than that. The Browns are in a desperate spot, and in a desperate time, they're going to need to pay desperate prices. And what happens if the Jets or the Bills or anyone else wants to get involved? It could easily get crazy. You know, I'm okay with the Eagles pick, 3-1 maybe. To get Alex Smith in here. But I have a feeling that the uh, Kansas City Chiefs are going to recoup the first round pick that they lost in this draft. And try to get to 2-3 or to 2-1. And I don't think you can trade those picks for Alex Smith. I mean, this is going to be a one-year rental. And you're going to have to pay his $16.2 million salary anyways. I mean, I think you can. And you know what? I kind of feel like they would. But I just think that's a little too much to pay in value. Let's see what the Browns are going to be able to do in order to make a trade like this happen. Because I'm pretty sure that Alex Smith, if he is available, has got to be the guy that the Browns are going to plan to build around in this offseason. 
They're going to have to get that bridge quarterback and they're going to have to draft the quarterback at number one. You know, I'm hearing people say more and more that maybe Saquon Barkley at one, one is a good idea. And yeah, I'm telling you now, and I'm pretty serious about this. They can't draft Saquon Barkley at number one. They have to draft the quarterback and they can't just pick any quarterback they want either. They got to pick one of the golden three. And the golden three, of course, are Darnold, Allen, and Rosen. All three of these guys are going to be stars in the league. All three of them. And there might even be more stars in this draft at the quarterback position. More very, very good players. I guess to be clear, right now, I want to say that my order is this. Darnold first, Allen second, Rosen third. I know that Dallin, that Allen thing is not that popular with a lot of people at DBN Network. I just think for me, people got to watch the games. If you watch what he does on the field, it's easy to see why people want Allen in the top three. I mean, I, I think it's a no-brainer. But I mean, sometimes people see the numbers. They see a game where he has 90 yards and they're like, oh man, this is not even a good team he's playing against. Like, this guy's obviously regressed. Without going and watching the tape and seeing what he did in the game. You have to look and see what he's doing. I don't even really care so much about the statistics as much as I care about what he's actually showing you on tape. This is the most important thing. I don't, for me, that's what I like. But for me, I told you first, even though I like Allen a lot, I think that the choice, it's kind of a no-brainer in this situation, that it's Sam Darnold. I think the Ohio State game was the one that convinced me to want him. For me, he makes some great throws in that game. He made some bad throws too, you know. But just as I was watching, I, I really felt for him in this game. You know, I felt for the, the persona he had on the field. And I don't know, as a fan, I really saw something special in him. For me, I think this is a really good dude. And when you watch the way that his boys rallied around him, I mean, his boys looked like they were down to fight for him. It wasn't just like, hey, that's the quarterback, but you know, that was their guy. Sam Darnold, to me, is a solid kid in who he actually says he'd be honored to play for the Browns. I mean, can the Browns actually pass a prospect who says that? Really? I don't think he can pass that here. The only reason I think I might want to pass it is because of what Kaiser went through last year here. You know, I don't know if I want Jackson to have his hands on Darnold and maybe it would be better if that guy was Bayfield just because, I don't know, his temperament might help him weather the storm that Hugh Jackson's going to bring with him right away. Uh, but then again, of course, that would be a mistake because it would mean that we've selected the complete and total jerk Baker Mayfield to play quarterback for the Browns. Fourth and easy. Baker Mayfield is a jerk. I was watching videos of him on the show, The Fumble, on YouTube because, you know, I do that sometimes. And he's dating some Instagram model after he broke up with his last hot girlfriend and making nasty breakfast burritos for her. And these burritos look like the nastiest things I've ever seen. And, you know, I guess this is making like a, a jerk for real. And I guess I don't really care about his personal life for real. But why does his Instagram model think that... Him putting scrambled eggs on plain white tortilla is cute. I'll tell you something, it's really not. And it's too bad, because Baker Mayfield can play football. I mean, I kind of wanted him to suck so I could say, look, this guy is a jerk and he sucks at football, but I think the dude can play. I can even see why people are looking at him and they would say, 
on the field, he's performed better than the other prospects because that could also be true too. But for me, I'm not just judging based on college production because you aren't going to draft him to play at UVA or Auburn. You're going to project him into a man's league. And so much of that projection is stature. And that isn't everything. But if you don't have it and you're a jerk, you're just asking for trouble. If you're a jerk and you want to play wide receiver, I mean, whatever. Look at Antonio Brown. I mean, I don't really know about Antonio Brown, but like OBJ or Terrell Owens, Chad Johnson. I mean, whatever, man. They can play wide receiver. If you're a jerk at quarterback, you better check all the other boxes. And if you don't, you're a second-tier project, plain and simple. It doesn't mean you can't be the best in the class. And maybe he will turn out that way. But... It would be lunacy to select Baker Mayfield with 1-1 or 1-4. So, thank heavens about this fact. Things can change. Things can change. And again, people are talking an awful lot of smack about Josh Allen. And What's wrong with the child, man? For me, these quarterbacks are going 1-2-3. Darnold, Rosen at 2, Allen at 3. From the Browns, I totally do it the other way. I do Darnold, Allen, Rosen. Just me. Get the first pick. You can get whatever you want. See who cares. I would say for us, the question is what to do at number four. For me, the answer is pretty simple. It's draft the best player available. Who happens to be Chubb out of NC State. I like Chubb. I guess I could take Minka Fitzpatrick or Barkley. But if I was going to take either one of those guys, I think I'd want to get him at a better value trading back. There's so many targets. Uh... At 3-1 or 4-1, you could target and get the same value at running back. Rashard Penny comes to mind. I don't know. For me, I just don't think the value is there for Saquon Barkley at 4. I just don't. He's as good as he is, and he's good in a lot of ways. just doesn't seem right for me. Anyways, I'm slowly getting back to caring about football and about my favorite time of the year, which is the offseason for the Browns. Hopefully, I'll be able to come to a point where I like the the regular season just as much as the offseason. But we'll have to see after this period uh, coming up this offseason, what happens in free agency, what happens in the draft, and then hopefully what happens going into the season next year. And with that, we'll put this one in the books. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us here at the DBN Network. Please leave a comment in the comment section as it helps to facilitate discussion with you the best fans in all the sports. Well, that was your dose of the straight truth. You've been listening to Straight No Chaser. I am your host, Thelonious7 on the DBN Network. Take care. Cassidy is kneeling at the 17, 37-yard attempt to kick his up. It is good. The Browns have won the game. The Browns have won the game in double overtime. 23-20, and the stadium is gone for sir. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.
Hello, I'm Nilay Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then, in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of, like, afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts.